May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. In this week's podcast, we are going to continue the conversation with Dr. Bill Dobson. This is an important conversation for many people with fibromyalgia because of the comorbidity, the coexistence of ADHD with many with fibromyalgia. So it's important to continue to learn more about this. There's some several key points that are brought up today by Dr. Dobson in our conversation. The average person who has ADHD as an adult has seen 3.3 physicians and has had 6.7 failed SSRI, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitor, trials over seven years before they are finally diagnosed, which most people end up just giving up in trying to get help and getting better, which is very frustrating. There also are some organizations to help you find a physician who feels comfortable in both the diagnosis and management of ADHD. There's the NADDA, and that is the adult organization for ADHD. There's also CHAD, C-H-A-D-D.org, as well as ADD.org that you can use to help find a physician in your area and to learn more about ADHD in your local region. Another important point that he brings up is that about 90% of adults with ADHD were referred or came to see Dr. Dobson because a family member was struggling with ADHD, was diagnosed, got treated, and had a remarkable improvement in their functioning. That prompted them to look at information and learning more about ADHD and sometimes even borrowing their relatives' medications and sheepishly or somewhat guiltily coming in and confiding that, yes, they tried their family member's medication and it remarkably helped them, which prompted them to want to get treated as well. And Dr. Dobson brings up, hey, don't be ashamed of that. We don't recommend taking other people's medications. But hey, if every teacher or doctor had failed you up to this point in helping you figure out what's going on, and then you on your own were able to help figure this out, more power to you. These are a couple of things to be thinking about on this week's episode as we continue to have this important conversation. Welcome to the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast, where my goal is to give real answers and real solutions to real pain, fatigue, and brain fog. Who am I and what authority do I have to give a podcast on fibromyalgia? Well, I've been a physician for over 25 years. I'm a pediatrician, an internist, which is a medical doctor for adults, as well as certified in lifestyle medicine and clinical lipidology. 
I hope to weave the best of medical management with the best of lifestyle and use an evidence-based approach to give information in a digestible delivery, both through the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain, as well as through this podcast. Remember that this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and should not replace an office visit with your physician or medical provider. I hope that this will be a supplement to your office visits as well as to what's covered in the book. This podcast is meant for you if you have fibromyalgia, if you have a loved one who has fibromyalgia, or if you are a physician or healthcare provider who wants to learn more about how to take excellent care of your patients with fibromyalgia. My hope is to help you as you go on the bold journey from not just surviving fibromyalgia, but reducing the suffering and even reversing fibromyalgia. You can show your support for the podcast by leaving a review and sharing with others and hitting the follow or subscribe button wherever you're listening to podcasts. And now on to this week's episode. But very few, if you think there are very few doctors who read about ADHD, there are really very few docs who read the European literature on. So that's that's where all the good stuff's coming from. You know, getting back to making the diagnosis, you say it's nebulous, but it isn't just so nebulous that a doctor can't make the diagnosis and it's just a guess that you have to be the super specialist like yourself or not at all. This is something that when you start to recognize it and know what to look for and ask the right questions. I know I've had patients who've said to me, and this is whether it's fibro or ADHD, other things, you know, Dr. Lenz, you ask questions that I've never had doctors ever yeah. ask me before exactly. because I didn't know it was normal. I think one of the thing with ADHD you talk about is that I just, I just thought everybody was like this. I didn't know. That's their normal. And until like the history of the dad who says, well, I was just like him. And when I was in first and second grade, I, you know, and, and and then, and often that's where my education on ADHD was, I'd start taking care of the parents. And I've had four generations of of, of uh, sometimes families that it is intergenerational and it's one of these because it's so effectively treated I'll purposely just say and this is not to be punitive or deprecating but I'll, if I have somebody with that I'll say hey just so you know if it's a child that I'm seeing now one of you has this I kind of say that and I'll get your insight on this but I say that most probably less than 10% of adults who have who are over age 30 even know they have it let alone or are even being treated for it if they were and probably 30 and under there's a pretty good chance the higher chance because they you know they might have been through uh, in the 90s and early 2000s where they might have had that but you had to have a teacher who was on the alert you know i've seen stuff where they you get in trouble a lot of times there's teachers who 
it's almost like politically correctness in reverse. Like you can't even mention that you, you go, well, you might want to talk to your doctor, but I don't want to get in trouble for mentioning this. And they're not to make the diagnosis. Even though the federal law requires them to, to say something, they believe they'll get in trouble if they do. And sometimes that's because they did get burned by parents. The parents said, well, there's nothing wrong. You just have, you need to teach better. There's nothing wrong. And part of that, and this is this humility check is, well, if there's something wrong with Johnny or Julie, well, well, then there's probably something wrong with me. And I don't want to say there's something wrong. And I like how you say it's just neurotypical. It's how the brain works, not as a moral or that. And often I, I like to use the analogy. It's like needing glasses. You know, if you can't see, you're going to never function as good as you can. You get the right prescription. You still got to study. You still got to do all of those things. But most of life, you're not the guy who's just coming up with cool ideas. Even if you are the architect, you're grinding, you're doing the reports, you're doing all the methodical stuff, the boring stuff. And with that, but I think that similar with fibromyalgia and ADHD as well, that there are not that many doctors who feel comfortable diagnosing it. And if they, if they felt diagnosing it, don't feel comfortable managing. I get a chance to take care of I've had patients who uh, a recent patient who had seen another uh, family physician in the area who they, they first choice. Well, one was, Oh, you're the first family practice doctor told her after her, she, after she's a hairstylist and a, a client of hers who was a physician as in, and said, oh, well, you know, you're ADHD. And she's like, what do you mean? Well, you know, you have ADHD, right? And she's like, well, I didn't know I have ADHD. <laughs> and she started learning about it. She's like, oh, she goes to her doctor and says, oh, you're fine. You don't have any problem. You're, you're fine. And then she went to another doctor and said, okay, I am, I'm going to put you on Stratera and try to get in you with neuropsych testing, which is not the way you make the diagnosis with neuropsych testing. ADHD does not show up on neuropsych testing. A really important point was just made. ADHD diagnosis is not made by neuropsychological testing. Unfortunately, this continues. There's a lot of good information out there. Russell Barkley has a paper on this. But a diagnosis of fibromyalgia as Dr. Dobson has said on the first part of the ADHD series here, is that it's made by a careful clinical history using rating scales to make the diagnosis. Now, what ends up happening is that if you are delayed in making the diagnosis, that means unnecessary struggling for those who have both fibromyalgia and ADHD. Studies showed out of South Africa in 2018 in the Journal of Pain that in a clinic treating patients with fibromyalgia that approximately 46% of those had ADHD based on the World Health Organization ADHD version 1.1 self-report scale. Now this can actually underestimate significantly ADHD as people with ADHD tend to underestimate their impairment. Also, it doesn't take into the account a clinical history that can help clarify things. It also doesn't take into account that somebody may be working in a job that is not as cognitively challenging, which may be revealing or not revealing their true impairment. 
There also is a lack of experience by many physicians in diagnosing and treating ADHD. There's a significant stigma around ADHD as well. And again, this can lead to unnecessary delay in treatment. Part of why I decided to write a book on fibromyalgia and also starting the podcast is, well, I cannot see in the United States to 10 million plus people struggling with fibromyalgia, but maybe they can learn more. Maybe they have a doctor who's neutral about these things, but it's open to learn because these are things that involve complicated, well, medications are complicated, but they didn't have the treatment, but also the lifestyle approach to getting help. And hopefully the doctors who are listening, or if you are listening and you have this, maybe you can share this with your doctor to help them grow more in their understanding, because in the end, the doc- the patient has to get a doctor to willing to treat. And I, I think it's... And the doctors are the stubborn clog in the pipe. We got lots of good medications. We have lots of patients. The clog is the physicians who don't know how to prescribe. And so they do nothing. Um, the, the statistic is that the average person at the time of diagnosis has seen 3.3 physicians. They have had 6.7 failed SSRI trials over a period of at least seven years. In other words, the fact that the physicians don't know what they're doing, they don't know how to diagnose or treat, puts off diagnosis seven years and exposes them to multiple failed attempts. And most people drop out. They give up. They said, okay, I've tried getting treatment and it didn't work. And so I'm going to stop looking any further. And the physicians have become a problem rather than a solution. And one, and, that, and that's so frustrating. And that's my heart goes out to somebody who may even be listening to this and then might do some of these things, uh, looking at Attitude Magazine and going through and learning more and researching and may know they have it, but it, it, they, you know, you may know how to fix your house and you may do a YouTube video on how to fix something. You can learn how to do it, but you can get the parts. There is a doctor or prescriber component that has to come down with this and um, it can be highly so, frustrating. Yep. Finding that doc is probably the biggest problem because usually your family practitioner, your pediatrician, especially your general practitioner has, I mean, they're good people to try it hard, but it just wasn't part of their training. It just, it was never mentioned. I mean, 93% of psychiatrists, it was never mentioned in their training. It's not their fault. It's medical education. So you have to find somebody who likes doing ADHD work in adults. How do you do that? Well, the best thing to do is to go to a meeting, either of the NADDA, the National Association, ADHD and Adults Association, uh, or CHAD, which is Children and Adults with ADHD. And on both of those, um, um, the adult organization is ADD.org. And for children, it's chadd.org. And they can tell you uh, where the meetings are in your area. And you go and talk to people who are just a year ahead of you. They know who's good. They know who's not. If you're in a small town or a rural town, you may have to go and drive a couple of hours into a big city 
to find somebody. Once you get diagnosed and the medication is fine-tuned, that's it. it uh, tolerance doesn't develop. The medication doesn't have to be changed after that. And most uh, primary care docs are willing to continue the prescriptions if somebody else has fine-tuned. So you need to find somebody who really knows what they're doing. Otherwise, you're going to get frustrated. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that it's more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. I think one of the things that contributes to this is that stimulants are a controlled substance, at least in the United States and probably most places in the world, which makes some patients and physicians wary of prescribing it. How much concern should they have about the safety and addictiveness of stimulant medication for treatment of ADHD? Yeah. This is a, another example of that axiom of, uh, hello, I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> uh, these medications should not be controlled substances. For the first 70 years they were on the market, they were over-the-counter medications. You could walk into the pharmacy, pick it up off the shelf. It was used for nasal or chest decongestion or asthma. They became uh, controlled substances in 1958 when, uh, after World War II, Governments just dumped lots of stimulants on the market that they'd been giving to soldiers to keep them awake. And there was some minor problem in uh, Sweden. And everybody around the country said, well, let's monitor this. And so they made them Schedule Four, which is the least regulated group in 1958. Another 20 years passed, and it's now 1978. And this country suddenly discovered drug abuse. Cocaine was had become a big deal. Methamphetamine abuse had become a big deal. And so the federal government said, anything that can be made into methamphetamine, we're going to put in Schedule Two with methamphetamine. And they never slowed down enough to ask, can you make methamphetamine out of amphetamine? And the answer is, you can't. You make methamphetamine out of Sudafed which they left on the shelves for another 30 years. So it's, it, it's basically a largely incompetence in the federal government. So let's, if we were to go through and say, okay, let's make a list of the features of drugs that get abused. They feel good. People really like them. They come back because they want to feel that way again. There's a ready market for them. People think about it all the time. They get a craving for it. And people have to fight with their kids to get them off of drugs. Pretty good list. Tell me about the drugs for ADHD. Well, if you're below your optimal dose, you don't feel anything. And if the dose goes a little bit too high, people complain bitterly about how these medications make them feel. There is no euphoria. It doesn't feel good. And the biggest problem is people forget to take their medication. There's no craving. There's no addiction or anything like that. And parents have to fight with their kids who take the medication. So when you just sort of lay it out, the medications for ADHD are exactly the opposite 
of drugs of abuse. When you look at how many people actually keep taking their medications, 50% of people don't fill the third prescription. We've already lost 50% of people in the first two months. At the end of a year, only 13% of people are still taking medication. In other words, an 87% attrition rate. Does that sound addictive to you? Did eighty-seven percent fall away? Uh, there's, again, people get these ideas in their head and never question. Or if they think about what they actually know about the medication, they have virtually no uh, addictive potential. Tolerance doesn't develop. The reason that people try to abuse them is that they're there. Mm-hmm. Where what other Schedule Four, Schedule Two drug? is out there in the hands of adolescents. And so will people try to abuse them? You can bet your bottom dollar they will try to abuse them. But the people who actually continue to do so fall into a very narrow demographic. White, male, fraternity members who were already alcoholic by the time they got to college and they use the stimulants to stay awake so they can drink more. Mm-hmm. Misuse and abuse by women, Asians, Blacks, and Hispanics, almost unheard of. It's a very narrow demographic. So it's when a white male fraternity member comes in and says, you know, I want some Adderall and I, and I want the immediate release format. That's when I go, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's... Right. it's you have to be careful, right? Maybe they do have struggles, but you're going to be very much more mo- careful in monitoring and and all of that because right. these are generalizations. Doesn't mean that everybody walks in if you're in a fraternity or we're in a fraternity yeah. that you can't go ever get but, treated. But the, red, the red flags say, let's take some time and really figure this out. The place where that runs into difficulty is that about 90% of my adults got to me in a very particular way because ADHD is so genetic. Somebody in the family will get started on medication. Their life changes and everybody sees they're a different person. They're doing great in their life for the first time. So they start talking about what happened. Well, I got diagnosed with ADHD, got on medication and my life's totally different. They continue to talk. The person goes, wow, that sounds exactly like me. So he tries his cousin's medication and sees that it works beautifully. Mm-hmm. And he comes in to see me to get his own prescription. And so when I ask him, you know, their story about how did they get to me, and they kind of sheepishly tell me, well, I tried my, <laughs> my cousin's medication, they expect me to be angry with them. And I'm not. My, my point of view is, first of all, don't, don't take other people's medication. That's just stupid. Um, across the board. But the way I look at it is every teacher you ever had failed you. Every doctor you had fail you, failed you. You figured it out on your own and you're doing the right thing by coming in to get your own prescription. That's great. <laughs> Congratulations. I admire you. Uh, and just you, you can see the tension come out of them. And I'm not going to yell at them tell them they're a drug addict and stuff like that. They basically played the hand that was given. 
For many of you, you may feel like you've played the hand that's been given you with fibromyalgia. You've gone to your doctor, you've shared your symptoms, and maybe the right questions weren't asked of you and that didn't lead to a adequate comprehensive assessment of all of the co-existing and comorbid issues, one of which may be untreated, unrecognized ADHD. We'll continue this conversation with Dr. Dobson. If you have any questions, feel free to email me. I'd love to hear your feedback that I can share on future episodes. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast. If you do, please hit the like or share button and subscribe and share this with others on any social media sites that you'd like. And until next week, go Team Fibro.